you would please pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, um, we do acknowledge our tendency to avoid you, to really engaging with you. It's foolish on our part. It's sin on our part, but Father, we acknowledge it. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you now would come in our midst. You're here, but you would come in such a way that would reveal to us that which is true of God, that which is true of ourselves, so that we could deny neither. And then help us, I pray, to respond to that truth in a way that brings you, God, glory and thus is to us a blessing to our souls. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read Psalm number 51. Psalm number 51. We've already read most of it. As our prayer of confession this morning. So you'll, if you're thinking, I've heard this before, uh, you're right and you have a reasonably good short-term 10-minute memory. Psalm number 51. Hear the word of God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from, iniqu- from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear hear joy and gladness, and the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or would I give it? You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Now, what I want to do coming up in the fall is to preach something else. To preach, I think Rick mentioned, to preach through Malachi, this prophet. And uh, I'll tell you when I get there why. You know why. It's in the Bible. It's something that's 
interesting me at the moment, and so we'll go there. But, but I don't want to begin that till the fall, till everybody gets back and all of that. But, but this isn't fill-in, but, but I want to sort of prep us for that. Because really, as we read through the prophet Malachi, what he's speaking to us is, what is real worship? What does it really mean to declare and to live out the worth of God? So that's what, that's what we're, we'll get to when we get to this prophet Malachi. Not, not just simply our times of corporate worship, but, but, but worship 24-7. What does it mean that God is worth it? What, what does it mean that we're to live out, declare, reflect the worth of God? Now, so what I want to do before we get there is to take up in the scripture a couple, I think, of prayers of confession. Couple of prayers of confession, um, because you see what these prayers of confession do for us when we confess is it is answers the question: What do I do? How do I respond to with the reality, the fact of sin? See, what do I do with that reality? What do I do with the fact that we, as human beings, have sinned against God? And what do I do? with the reality of the fact that I have sinned against God. So the the corporate, the humanness, the the human extent of this sin, but but also my own. And so this rebellion against God, this this lack of of desire to conform to the will of God, to conform, uh, to to, to obey the commandments, what what does that mean? How do I respond to that? And and so we come now to the scripture. This particular psalm uh, of David is one that's that's very helpful to us because, because it's a reflection of his own dealing with the fact, the reality of his personal sin, of, of a particular sin. And, and it drives him then uh, to, to pray this prayer of confession. And it's laid out for us. And it's laid out for us in Scripture. Um, I could write a prayer of confession. We do that all the time. Every week we come up with various ones. And people ask me, where do you get these prayers of confession that we use? And, and the answer is that I steal them. So I guess that's a confession. Uh, I, I take bits and pieces of historic prayers from time to time. I read these things all the time. And, uh, and, and put them together, piece them together. Some, then I add some things, subtract some things, that sort of thing to make it apropos, make it fit for our particular worship on that, on that morning. But, but they all draw really from how we're to confess our sins as, as we see it in the scriptures. It lays out. And what the Psalms do for us, this prayer book of the Bible, is, is inform us how it is that we're to think about our sin and how it is that we're to feel about our sin and how we're to express ourselves. You see, we can't presume that we know all of that in and of ourselves. We need God to inform every aspect of our being, to transform every aspect of our being, the way that we think, the way that we feel, and the way that we express ourselves. One author in in thinking and writing about the Psalms wrote this. He said, the Psalms are designed by God to awaken and express and shape the thoughts and feelings of Jesus' disciples. We learn from the Psalms how to think about discouragement and guilt And we learn from the Psalms how to feel in times of discouragement and in times of horrible regret. The Psalms show us how to be discouraged well and how to regret well. In other words, we don't live that out. When the reality of our sin hits us, we really get it. There is sorrow. 
There is feelings of guilt. There, there is sadness. There is regret. And so the question is, what do we do with that? Well, God in his mercy and in his kindness says, I'll show you what to do with that. I'll write it up for you. I have these people who will write a book in the Bible. I'll expire it. That is, I'll breathe it out through them. And, and I'll work through their very lives, their very, their very experiences as they live under me, and, and they will respond to me in a particular way that's true of human beings, comes from their heart. But, but, but I want you to follow this. This will be your blueprint. This is who, how you'll understand. Don't do it your own way. Do it this way. This is how you're to think about the reality of the sin in your life. This is how you're to feel about the reality of sin in your life. And this is how you're to express it to me, God says. So that's what I want to do. As we, as we work through these particular, this, this particular psalm today and then another passage in another part of the scripture as well. Uh, you'll notice the publicness of this. Uh, the, the introduction says, uh, to the choir master. So basically, David says, I want my confession to be sung by all the people. And so the choir master is to put it to music. Now, why does he do that? Not to celebrate his sin. Yes, to celebrate the mercy of God. But so that the people will learn it. You see, these were sung, and, and as they were sung, you know, you, you sing these songs all the time. They get in our heads. When we, when we sing uh, on Sundays, you go through the week, and all of a sudden you're humming a song. I still have VBS running through my mind, primarily because of the songs that I heard every day, and I heard the kids sing, and and, and, and so they just remember it that way. So, so this was to be sung. This was to be memorized. This was to be learned. This is how people were to express themselves to God concerning what they were now thinking and feeling about, about their sin. So that's this public nature of all of this. And, and, and what's helpful here is we know the particular of, of David's sin. It says, to the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into uh, Bathsheba. You see, what's helpful there? It's to know that incident. I'm sure you know that situation. And it's coming to your mind even now. But knowing that situation, we learn a great deal about how David first responded to his sin. And then how he later responded to his sin. Once he was confronted with the reality of it and embraced it. And that's instructive to us as well because you see, sin is deceptive as it was with David. You know the situation. The, the scripture says, Second Samuel chapter 11, the scripture says that it was in the springtime, a time that when the kings go to war. I guess war had a season, <laughs> like baseball. And so spring, so we should go to war. And, and so that's the time of the year that the, the kings went to war. And, so, and so, so David didn't go with his men. He sent them. And so he was home. He was resting. Couldn't sleep. Got up. You know the story. Went to his roof. Looked out from his roof. And he saw this beautiful woman bathing. And you can get a sense of the sin circling. The lust in his own mind at that moment in time. He went to one of his servants and says, who's that? And it was very clear who she was. She was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the Hittite was off at war. David wasn't. Uriah was off at war. He worked for David in that sense as a soldier, no doubt, a leader of men as well. But, but there he was. And so David looked upon him. He says, send to get her. And 
You know the story, who could deny an invitation from the king? It could be that David, even at that moment in time, wasn't so much thinking or allowing himself to think through the situation. I know how this will end, and, and this is how I want it to end. But, but perhaps it was even more subtle than that, the deception in his own mind. And he said, well, you know, her husband's off at war. I should be hospitable. Her husband's off at war. I should bring her to dinner and see how she's doing. I should ask of his house. That, that's what I'll do. I'll bring her in. And so she comes, and, and she dines with the king. And then there was that other invitation that she could not deny. And then things got complicated. Complicated because she became pregnant. Complicated because she was married to a good man. So, so David thought, I have a solution to this. I'll bring Uriah home. I have the power to do that. As the king, as commander-in-chief, I'll just say, bring him home. And, and surely then he'll, so he'll, he'll go with his wife. And then when the baby is born, everyone will say, oh yeah, that happened when Uriah was on furlough. But Uriah was such a good man that he could not enjoy the, 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 the benefits and the blessings of, of being home when his men were sleeping in tents. And so he didn't sleep at home. He, he didn't even go there. He went and he slept on the porch of the king. And so all the servants of the king would know that Uriah didn't spend that night at home. So, so David then <clears throat> did the manly thing. He got Uriah drunk. And he thought surely in this dullness of mind he'll go home. But still he did not. Right, went back to the front. And, and so when he did, uh, David said this to the commander. He said, now take Uriah and put him where the fighting is most fierce. And when the fighting begins, have all the other men back away. That's exactly what happened. Uriah was killed. Now she mourned after her mourning. Then she wed David. See, that's the deception of sin. How did David get to that part? You see, when I read this story, it scares me. I mean, I wish I were concerned about it because the name of God had been besmirched as a, that language that our previous generation preachers would use. It was besmirched. It was defamed, the very name of God, because of this sin of David. And, 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 and I wish that that's the only thing that bothered me here. I, I wish that, that, that I was bothered by the fact that Bathsheba had been led into sin by David I, I, and, and her life, in a sense, really harmed and, and Uriah's the injustice that he suffered and his family and all of that yeah that bothers me on a good day but what really scares me is if David could do that could I see this was David this was one about whom the scripture speaks that he was a man after God's own heart this was David the man who said the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want this is David he said, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. This is David, the one who said, you are my rock and my redeemer. This was David who said, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I fear? This was David. This could be true of him. What about me? I mean, I can write off Hitler as one who was insane and say, well, I'll never do that. <laughs> but this was David. This is David, whose life I read, and I said, I want to be like him. And then I read this, and I go, but. And then I realized the deceptiveness of sin. The author of Hebrews chapter 3 puts it like this. 
verse 12, he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see, it's deceitful. Sin doesn't show up and say, Hi, my name is Sin. I'm going to destroy your life. Sin shows up and says, Hi, my name is Pleasure. I'm going to satisfy you. Hi, my name is sexual gratification. I'm going to indulge you. Hi, my name is power. I'm going to exalt you. Exalt you. Hi, my name is possessions. I'm going to give to you everything that you ever wanted. That's how sin shows up. No doubt, even in, in David's life, that's, that's the subtlety of how sin showed up in his life. And say, David, look at this woman. I'm going to destroy your life. David, I'll satisfy you. That was the deceptiveness, you see, of that sin. But what even scares me more, if you will, is that after David sinned as he did, it's, it's as if he hardened himself against the reality of it and seemed to live without the consciousness of it. Oh, it seems as he relates in some of his poems. It seems that it was wreaking havoc on his body, but he didn't describe that difficulty, that discouragement, that any of that to, to his sin. He, he just simply put it to other sources, I suppose. He lived in the denial of it. And I think, could that be true of me? Of what sin am I denying? Well, you know, it happened that God raised up this prophet Nathan to come to David with a story. It seemed like a fictitious story, but it was more true than we could ever imagine. You know the story, I suppose. Nathan comes to David and he says to David, oh, there are two men, one rich, one very poor. The rich man had everything, everything he could ever want. The poor man only had as his prized possession a wee little lamb, and it was really a family pet. They grew up, they gave it a name, he ate it, he ate it at the man's table. He, he loved this little lamb. It was, it was the household pet, if you will. And, and a guest comes to visit the rich man, and, and so the rich man uh, needs to put on a meal. But rather than taking one of his own uh, lambs, it wouldn't even have noticed taking this lamb. It wouldn't even shown up probably in the inventory. He had so many. Rather than taking one of his own, he went to this poor man and he took that one poor man's wee little lamb and he, and he sacrificed, he killed that lamb and, 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 and that lamb was then served to his guest. And as David heard the story, he was enraged by it. Isn't that amazing? How we can so easily see the sin of another even while we're living in our own. <laughs> That's scary to me. David was outraged. He said, that man should die. Right conclusion. Wrong man. Nathan looked at David and said, you are that. Essentially, it was this, and is it clear to us, David, you have everything you could ever want. All Uriah had was Bathsheba. 
God said, I've given you all the wives. I've given you all the wealth. I've given you all the power. And if you wanted more, I would have given it to you. Why did you take this one? And you're that kind of man, David. That's what's in you. And I read that. I hear that. And I hear God saying, you're that. that within you you have it within you to be deceived by sin and to sin grievously and then deny it and live as if nothing ever happened you're that man and so what we need what Nathan did was he unmasked sin he said David this is what sin does it destroys, you don't get it, but now you see it. You are that man. You don't want to be that man, do you? That's despicable. You've reached judgment upon him. Well, that's the judgment upon you, David. Deal with it now. And so David responds in this unmasking of sin. And the most profound words, I've sinned against God. Yeah. Now the question. Now that. The reality of his sin has surrounded him. He can no longer deny it. What's he to do? Well, he comes, of course. He comes and he makes confession of his sin. That's what we'll unpack in the next, the next couple of weeks. But you see, he begins to think rightly about himself and about his his own sins. He, he says in, in verse, uh, let me find it. For against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You see, at that point, it isn't so much that David is saying, well, I haven't sinned against Bathsheba and I didn't sin against Uriah and I didn't sin against the nation. I mean, we can make a long list of all David's sins, of course. I mean, there was the lying and there was the, there was the adultery and the unfaithfulness and drawing another person into it. There was the murder of, of Uriah as if he had drawn his own sword. All of that. And he isn't saying, I, I didn't sin against these people. But he says, I realize that ultimately all sin, God, is against you. You remember there was a time in the life of Jesus where there was a man who, who couldn't come to Jesus on his own. And so his friends brought him, dropped him through the roof. He was on a bed of affliction. He was a paralytic, as the scripture says, he couldn't walk. And, and Jesus forgave him. And everyone said, who are you to forgive sins? Only God can do that. Well, Jesus could do that because he was caught in the flesh. And all sin is ultimately against God. It's, it's God's command, you see. And so we're to obey his commands. When we sin against another, we've broken the command of God. We've broken the will of God. So in that sense, all sin is against God. And, and that's the issue, you see. And he says, I've sinned against you, God, and, and, and I know that. And, and all sin is against you. I've done what is evil in your sight and God it's my fault he says so that you may just be justified in your words blameless in your judgment God you're right about me you're right in your judgment against me 
That's what confession means. I agree with God. Con means with. I agree with God. I speak the same thing after God. God's conclusion of us in our sinfulness is that we're to be condemned. And David's saying, you're right about that. I own that. Because you see, this is very personal. David says, these were my transgressions, my sins, my iniquities. And they were against you, God. A sin isn't against some slab of rock upon which rules are written. They're against the ones, the one who wrote them. They're against the one who wrote them because he loves us. Because he desires us to flourish. Because he desires us to have life. And he says, this is what it means to be human. This is what it means to live. Follow this. These commands are not an imposition upon you. These commands are not a burden upon you. These commands are an expression of my love for you. Live these and live, right? Don't rebel against them. And so David goes, I, I know that I did that. And here's, here's why. It's, it's iniquity. This, this word iniquity is a, uh, an interesting one. It means twisted. It's, it's my iniquity. I'm twisted. I know that. And I've been twisted ever since. It, it happened even, if you will, at conception when, when David writes in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not saying that m- the sexual intimacy that, that brought me into being was sinful. He's, that's not his point at all. He isn't saying that sexual intimacy is sinful. You remember that command was given before Adam and Eve sinned that they were to be fruitful and multiply and all of that so the the curse isn't sex but he says ever since then even at conception this sinfulness was a part of me and I know that that's how deep it is in me I, I can't sort of gloss over it. You know, Jesus had a great expression for the Pharisees. He called them whitewashed tombs. They kept painting over the outside, even though it was dead on the inside. You see? But, but God calls us not to repaint, but to repent, right? That's the inner thing. Don't just cover up the outside. Deal, you've got to deal with the inside. And we say, well, how can we deal with the inside? And he says, you can't. Only I can deal with the inside. So you need to come to me. So David says, I get it. It's, it's an inside. You uh, delight in truth in the inner being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. <clears throat> but I know my own inner being. It isn't truthful. I've been lying all this time. So God, now I come and I cast myself cast myself upon your mercy so so his request given all of that he says i want you god if you would please to blot out my transgressions to wash me thoroughly from my iniquity to cleanse me from my sin david so embraces this truth of him 
And he so now sees, because sin has now been unmasked, he now sees he is that man. And he says, God, I don't want anything at all to do with sin. So would you blot it out, that erase it, he says. Erase it, God, from your memory. Just erase it. Blot it out. Wash me. Now, now we have a, 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 a very, um, how should I put this, uh, easy view of washing. Because for us to wash, all we do is take off our clothes, and if they're stained, we squirt a little stuff on there. And we toss it in this machine. And it comes out ultimately clean. And that's it. You know, washing machines no longer even have agitators in them. See, that was always a good illustration. Uh, but they don't have agitators anymore, even in them. They just come to these big holes and you throw them in there and they do stuff. But they come out clean. Now you go back a generation or two and you talk about washing, washing out stains. Everybody knew that was hard work. You had to scrub it. You had to beat it against a rock. And so that's what it meant to be washed. And David is saying, even if it takes you beating me against the rock and scrubbing me hard, I want this gone from my life. Wash me, purge me, he says, with hyssop. Now, that's a deep phrase. Now, hyssop plant is just sort of the paintbrush of nature, if you will. You take it and dip it and paint with it, if you will, because of the way it was configured. But, but hyssop in the scripture was used very often of, 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 of that which cleansed was used on that Passover night when the, when the blood of the lamb was, was taken and it was, hyssop was dipped in the blood and, and then painted over the doorposts, you see. And then the temple hyssop would be taken and the tabernacle hyssop would be taken and it would be dipped in blood and sprinkled. It would be dipped in, in, in water and sprinkled. Why? Because this sense of to be in the presence of God, there must be cleansing. And so David is saying, do that. Not just, not just on my doorpost, not just on the, on the stuff in the temple, but, but do it in my own soul, in the, in the midst of my heart. Cleanse me, wash me, purge me, get this out of me. So I get it, God. I realize this is the enemy of my soul. This destroys everything. It destroys my relationship with you. It destroys my relationship with people. It kills. But you see, what's the ground of his petition? What basis does he come to God? Well, it isn't because of anything in himself, because he's already admitted that from the moment he was conceived, sin was in him. The moment that he was conceived, uh, this problem existed, this great flaw, this twistedness, this bent towards sinning, this, this, this iniquity. They didn't have anything. And he didn't do the foolish thing, which oftentimes happens with people, and says, God, if you'll get me out of this mess then, he didn't do that. He didn't promise that he would do better. He, he knew <laughs> the nature of his own heart. So he cast himself on the mercy of God. The mercy of God. He knew that God was merciful. He, he knew the time. In the history of his people, when, when Moses asked God to show him his glory. And so God said, I'll make my name go before you. 
And here is my name. I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. And so he knew God was merciful. And mercy means this. Mercy means I see you in your miserable state. And I can't not help myself from coming to your aid. That's what mercy is. Mercy is I'm so moved by your situation. I'm so moved by the pain you're in. I'm so moved by the misery that you're experiencing because of this that I will come. In fact, we could put it in this horrible grammatical expression. I can't not come. I must come. David says, I plead your mercy. Those who have gone before us, previous generations, used to speak of these kinds of prayers as pleading with God, as begging God. Now, somehow that strikes us badly because we think that that we shouldn't have to plead or beg because God should be, because of his character, very willing to come to our aid. He's promised to do that. So why would we have to plead? And if these who used to use that language would come from the dead, they would say, that's not what I mean. God isn't reluctant at all. We use those expressions of pleading and begging because they describe our condition. A beggar begs because he has nothing. And he goes to the one who has something to give. And he has nothing to exchange. He's a beggar. He begs. And so we need to beg God because that describes us. What that means of us is we have nothing to give. Really. So we beg in that sense. We plead in that sense. And what we're pleading is his mercy. We're not pleading anything in ourselves. We're not making an apology. That is, we're not making a defense. We're simply pleading his mercy. And you say, well, David, on what basis can you do that? Don't you know that God is also just? What's going to happen in the midst of this? And David says, well, here's what I know. I know that if you come to God with a broken and a contrite heart, there is sacrifice for sin. Now, if you don't come to God with a broken and contrite heart, then there is no sacrifice for sin. His, anything we sacrifice will just be nauseating to God. But, but, but if you come with a broken and contrite heart and, and you bring a sacrifice that is the judgment of God is poured out on another, then there is forgiveness. Now, we know that more fully. Why? Because one has come who is the very mercy of God that is our Lord Jesus. He's called our merciful and faithful high priest. He's called that because he knows our frame. He's called that because he so well knows the misery of sin that he can't not come when those who are in misery because of sin call upon his name. 
And when we call upon his name, he blots out our transgression. He erases it. It's remembered in heaven no more. He washes us from our iniquity. He cleanses us in such a way that we're able to stand in the very presence of God. That is true. See, Jesus unmasks sin. He unmasked it in his teaching. He talked about sin and the great danger of it. He said, listen, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, that is, causes you to sin, cut it off. Of course, Jesus was speaking figuratively there. Rather disfiguratively, I suppose. But we get it. He says, sin is out to destroy you. Better to be partially maimed, then then wholly destroyed. Don't let it do that. But he mostly unmasked it, if you will. We see it most clearly as he comes to the cross. He says, sin causes you to be that man. Sin causes you to be that man that when the very Son of God shows up in your face, you reject it and deny him and kill him. You are that man. And they showed us what happens because of sin. It leaves us lonely and betrayed and rejected and beaten. Rejected not only by men, but most assuredly rejected by God. He said, that's what sin does. See it. But he said, now appeal to my mercy. Because you see, the night in which Our Lord Jesus was betrayed. He laid all of this out for his disciples. He took bread that was there and he said, This is my body, which is given for you. The mercy of God. Took the cup. After giving thanks, he too gave this to his disciples and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. The mercy of God. Do this in remembrance of me. What do we remember? We remember the death of Christ. We remember, yes, the justice of God. But the mercy of God. So he lays this table before us and says, now, if you bring anything to this table other than your sin and other than your need and other than your hope in me, there is no sacrifice for sin. Don't come. But if you bring to this table your sin and your need and your hope in me, I will blot out your transgressions. I will cleanse you from your iniquity. I will cleanse you from your sin. 
And that is true. Let's pray. Father, pray for me and for us. It's whatever this week has done in our lives, whatever expression of sin that we have made, whatever denial of sin we have been party to, whatever sin now unmasked, we'll bring to you a trust not in ourselves, but in you and you alone. Because of Jesus, the very mercy of God, blot out our transgressions, wash us from our iniquity, cleanse us from our sin, grant to us the assurance that we belong to you, that we may rest in your provision and we walk in your ways. Take this bread, this juice, God, and set it apart in such a way uh, that we will know that we have been in the very presence of Jesus, our merciful high priest, the Savior of our souls. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you know, this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. And he says, come. If you believe in me, come. If you know yourself to be a sinner without hope except in the very sovereign mercy of God. And you believe and depend upon the Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the savior of sinners. And you desire now to live a life that's consistent with that. That is a life of confession, a life of repentance, a life of trust in Christ, trust of filling by the Holy Spirit. You come with anything but your sin and your need and your hope in him, do not come. But as you come, you're implicating yourself in this gospel. You're saying, I am one who has nothing in and of myself but sin, and I come and rely completely and totally upon Christ. That be true for you. I invite you to come. These two sections come down this aisle to my left. These two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and as you eat, allow yourself to know this, that Jesus is the mercy of God. He blots out our transgressions. He washes our iniquity. He cleanses us from our sin. Please come. for it.